0: Greetings, everyone. I'm Vicki Basplica, Director of the Clinical Specialist and Scientist Section here at ASHP. And thanks for joining. I'm excited to share with you that today's episode is a curated feature from the exceptional programming from the 2021 ASHP Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Please enjoy the voices of your colleagues as they share the latest clinical information, best practices, and leadership advice at the world's largest gathering of pharmacists. So, yes small patients and their PN challenges. So for the second half of this presentation, we're going to talk about the different challenges we have in these very small patients. So the challenges we're going to go over from more of a compounding and administration and ordering parameters are the following. So we're going to talk briefly about calcium phosphate solubility, three-in-one formulations, because many adult institutions use three-in-ones but pediatric institutions and particularly neonatal institutions do not. Product dilution issues, administration recommendations, compatibility with other agents, monitoring, and weaning of parental nutrition. So calcium and phosphate compatibility, this is a great example of calcium and phosphate incompatibility. You basically get a Swiss snow globe effect that's going on. And then I will probably have one of these looks on my face for these two other characters on there if I ever see this because I'm going to have some serious palpitations because you cannot safely infuse this into a patient. So why is this a problem in neonates? Why is this more of an issue than it is in adult patients that you may be taking care of? It's because these small patients need so much calcium and phosphorus, and that's because they need it for their bones. So the majority of calcium and phosphorus that you would have gotten from your mother was during the third trimester. And as Julia mentioned, these little guys decided to check out a little bit earlier than they were supposed to, and so they didn't get all that calcium and phosphorus accrual. Nutrition is not a great source of calcium and phosphorus due to the solubility concerns. And so, how can we maximize the calcium and phosphorus we get into these solutions? So, a couple of things that promote compatibility and solubility of calcium and phosphorus. So the amino acid concentration is really important, so the higher the amino acid concentration, the more calcium and phosphorus fits. Also the composition plays a big role in that, and that's actually why the infant products that Julia talked about are so critical in this patient population, because they do tend to have a more acidic nature to them. On top of that, you add that L-cysteine, and it's L-cysteine hydrochloride. that also lowers the ph further thus helping us with calcium and phosphate compatibility the concentrations of calcium and phosphorus also play a role so as those go up you can only get to a certain amount and i'll show you that here in just a minute the calcium salt form is critical and this is really important in drug shortage times because you'll see that we prefer calcium gluconate You can use calcium chloride, but you cannot get the same amount into the bag because calcium chloride is more likely to dissociate, find a phosphorus friend, and make a snow globe. pH of the formulation, so as I mentioned, a more acidic pH is helpful for compatibility and solubility. Dextrose concentration is just like amino acid concentration. The higher the concentration, the more soluble it is. Temperature. This is key. These babies live in a little sauna box, and you do not want the TPN in the sauna box, nor do you want the bilirubin lights shining on the bag, heating the sucker up, because the hotter the bag gets, the more likely you are to have incompatibilities, and your calcium and phosphorus will precipitate out. Finally, there's the order of mixing additives. You know, you learned this back in pharmacy school and you're like, why did I have to know this? And this is really key. So you always add the phosphorus first. You always add the calcium last. Of all your electrolytes, you try to get them as far apart as possible so that you don't have any precipitation risks. So this is a calcium phosphate curve. This is a happy curve, I like to say. It's got its little smiley face on it because it's happy this is not going to precipitate out but i go through these curves because nothing is worse than going into the pharmacy and seeing everyone standing around the abacus or the compounder whatever your source is that you have and trying to figure out the calcium and phosphate curves that are going with it and what might happen with that so on the bottom these are phosphorus in millimoles per liter and on the y-axis this is milliequivalents per liter of calcium so you calculate your millimoles per liter of phosphorus you calculate your milliequivalents per liter of calcium and you plot it so this person is about 22 millimoles per liter of phosphorus and 10 milliequivalents per liter of calcium so you put your dot right here and for this solution the closest curve to it is one of the classics is a 3% amino acid, dextrose 10% with cysteine added at the standard 40 milligrams per gram amino acids. And these are amino acid product specific. So you had to know that this was in this case, a trophamine one, but you could have, you know, Premisol or any of those other products uh, available. You just have to be specific to your product. So you have your curve here that gives you your solubility. Everything to the left of the curve is soluble everything to the right of the curve is not soluble so since the dot for your FOS and calcium concentrations is to the left of the curve, you have your smiley face. Now we don't always get smileys, we sometimes get frownies and instead of frownies, I put a red X here. So in this scenario, you have the exact same curve that you would use because the solution's the same, but now the prescriber has entered in for about 30 millimoles per liter of phosphorus and has entered almost 25 milliequivalents per liter of calcium, it might be close to 24, but that's definitely to the right of the line. And because it's to the right of the line, you're now concerned that this will precipitate. And so you would not allow this solution to be compounded due to your concerns for precipitation. So three in one formulations, this is something that's also known as a total nutrient admixture or a TNA. The advantage is it's one bag, it's prepared in the IV room, it's a one bag for administration, very easy for nursing. For us in the neonatal population, it is not a fun thing for us. We have a lot of disadvantages. So stability is a huge issue for us because you have to have minimum values to prevent the solution from cracking. And cracking is where it actually separates out into its oil components and into its aqueous components. You have like a thin film, like your salad dressing on top. So the minimum values in order to be stable are 4% amino acids, which is not usually a problem for us, but it's that 2% ILE final concentration can become a problem for us when we don't give quite as many fats to our patients or we may have some restrictions that may be going on compatibility wise is also a key issue so the ile is oftentimes the component that's incompatible with other medications and most neonates only have one central access line i always like to say you have adult icu you've got like lines coming out of every extremity that the patient has but my neonate has one line and so how do you work with that so oftentimes it's much easier to separate out your fat emulsion and your parental nutrition solution into two solutions or the two-in-one method as opposed to the three-in-one method so that you can pause the fat emulsion if you have incompatible medications. Finally, you cannot visualize that calcium and phosphorus precipitation once you add in the fat emulsion. You go from a clear bag that then turns yellow when you add the vitamins to a milky white solution when you add the fat emulsions in there and you just can't see the precipitation. So you can't visualize something that you're trying to push the envelope on. Product dilutions are another important thing and neonates. I know a lot of people have talked about recently about different shortages and what they're going to do for things such as trace elements. So that's a great example to give in this scenario. Sometimes for your neonatal patients, you have to create a dilution. For us in a freestanding children's hospital, this is nothing. We do it all the time. But for those who are in an adult institution and they take on a neonatal unit, this can definitely be a cause for concern. So let's say you have a 500 gram or 0.5 0.5 kilogram patient, and you're following the European guidelines because you're new and progressive, and you're giving 40 mics per kilo per day of copper. Copper comes as a 400 microgram per ml solution. So for this half a kilo patient, I only need 20 micrograms per day. If I utilize that 400 microgram per ml concentration, I need to add 0.05 mLs per day to the parental nutrition solution to get that amount of copper in there. That is not very easy to measure, even at the children's hospital, let alone in your adult institutions, which aren't as familiar with these small volumes to be drawn up. So it's much better to utilize a dilution. So a 40 microgram per ml. So you usually put like one of the drug and nine of the diluent to give your tenfold dilution. And you would then be able to do 0.5 mls per day of this copper dilution in order to to give it to your patient. Administration and filtration has been another huge issue. And this is becoming somewhat of a challenge in some institutions. There was a lot of push to utilize one filter. So there has never been shown to be any problems from the use of one filter in a three-in-one solution, the 1.2 micron filter, which is required for you to filter something that has a fat emulsion based on it, as if you had separately a 0.2 micron filter and a 1.2 micron filter, one for the parental nutrition solution and the larger one for the fat emulsion. So there was some information that was released from Aspen in 2020, and it recommended that you y cite the two together, which is commonly done for even our neonatal patients, and just provide one filter at the end. It cuts down on supplies. It cuts down on the risk of people not filtering one side of the product. We have found this to be a little challenging in the neonatal population because there's some backflow issues with this filter. Now, I still recommend it. It is more than appropriate uh, for these solutions. You may just have to work with some of the backflow issues with either uh, pressure valves or other solutions to work with it. But this is the current recommendation to utilize one filter for the 1.2 micron filter for these two solutions. Photoprotection, hot off the presses, literally before these slides were due. So fat emulsions are susceptible to light oxidation. They form free radicals, they form peroxides and other degradation products, all problems. Also, your fat-soluble vitamins, such as vitamin E and your polyunsaturated fatty acids, they are prone to photooxidation. So infants receiving non-photoprotected PNs were found to have higher levels of these urinary peroxides. And so there was Concern that maybe we should be photo protecting things. So the Aspen just came out with a recommendation to photo protect all parenteral nutrition solutions, all fat emulsions for all neonates and infants. And the ideal is to do a complete photo protection from compounding through administration. Now, they recognize that this is not necessarily something that we can do right away, but it is something we need to work towards. I know before we encountered some shortage issues, we were investigating what amber tubing and things we could get for these different products. But our goal at my institution is to move forward with this as we can. Repackaging is another issue. Unfortunately, the minimum volumes which we need for our patients are not designed for neonatal patients. So the commercially available products don't come in that minimum volume packaging. There are concerns about rapid infusion into these patients. If you have your infusion pump and it programmed incorrectly, the most common one is when parenteral nutrition is run at one rate and your fat emulsion is run at the other rate and getting them backwards. And so the fats, go very quickly into the patient, that can become a problem, basically due to a lipid overdose situation, and that can actually cause the transient hypertriglyceridemia, respiratory failure, metabolic acidosis, and death. So this then is the most cited reason for repackaging of these solutions. The problem is that you have to weigh the benefits of the smaller quantities with concerns for microbial contamination. Multiple studies have shown, despite the fact we do all our best efforts this solution is isotonic, it still can grow things in it. So the required maximum of a 12-hour infusion for repackaged containers holds true in the neonatal population. So if you infuse over 24 hours your fat emulsions and you repackage, you will need two 12-hour syringes. You cannot then exceed the lipid infusion rate of 0.15 grams per kilogram per hour. And that's why it takes you these longer periods of time to infuse it. You can't just say, okay, then I'll just give one syringe. It'll be 12 hours. Everything will dump into the patient and we'll still be able to give them a three grams per kilogram per day. That doesn't work for these patients. If you are using the commercially available containers, you do need to be mindful, and even with syringes, of the tubing prime volume because we typically do not flush our tubing in the NICU. And if you use the commercially available packages, you also have to think about how you could put some safety parameters in place. I really recommend you have minimum infusion volumes in your infusion pumps, you have barcode scanning of your different products, and you put some dose limits in there to be safe for this. Compatibility of co-administration with other medications, like I said, may be concerns. You may have two-in-one formulations or three-in-one formulations or an ILE alone. You cannot consider all of these equal when you look at these. These are separate scenarios that must be addressed. We have limited access and we have fluid-restricted patients, so that becomes a huge issue as well. Physical instability of the ILE includes increase in mean droplet size, that's why you have the filter. You can't filter your solutions in the IV room and then expect it to work without a filter on administration. The instability of the product is, means that it gets to be bigger fat globules. Those bigger fat globules can cause problems in the circulatory system of the patient, so it has to be filtered on administration. And so if it's unstable, then that could present a percent of problem. And like I said, compatibility information cannot be implied between differing PN solutions or differing ILE formulations. Julia mentioned all the different formulations that are now available for fat emulsions. You can't say that the soybean oil has this compatibility, so now the fish oil one has the same. These are different products and they have to be treated differently. Monitoring parental nutrition, like Julia said, we oftentimes start that starter solution and we don't have labs. We usually get our first set of electrolytes about 24 hours of life unless the patient is very critically ill. And we really try to minimize lab draws for these patients. So you'll see is if you're taking on a NICU and you're doing parental nutrition, you're not going to have the labs that you have for your adult medical ICU. We typically draw labs on a less frequent basis. We think about how long it takes for our solution to run into the patient before we get the labs, and we have to think about how much blood we're taking from this patient. So like I was saying, you have to consider about other solutions that also take a long time for changes to occur before your results are seen. You have to think about your labs, how they are obtained. We do a lot of heel sticks. They're almost always hemolyzed, so potassium is always higher. And naturally, our potassium and phosphorus levels are higher for our given patients. So that's definitely something to consider as well. I do provide the neonatal norms here, and that's why I wanna point it out. So each system is different, obviously, but you can see like seven, seven in some ranges is not unheard of. Six is nothing to us, you know, in the neonatal population. We typically are pretty fine with that. The other one is phosphorus. So look, the lower limit is 4.2. You know, if a patient had 4.2 and they were an adult patient, you'd be like, yay, no phosphorus. We're like, A phosphorus of three, that's boo, not enough phosphorus. We like to see those fives, those sixes in the middle there to know that our patient has enough phosphorus in order to have appropriate bone growth and in order to have enough energy. When you're weaning off of parental nutrition, you pretty much in the neonatal population just eventually run out of fluids. But we have really small lines, so we oftentimes need carriers for that. So that's something to consider in our patient population. And we like breast milk. Breast milk's good for all babies, and we like to give it to them. So we're going to push food into that gut, not too aggressively, as Julia mentioned, but we're gonna push it so that those patients will be transitioned from parenteral to enteral nutrition. I kind of provide a brief summary of what we do in Akron. So typically we go up, you know, by threes. I think a lot of people do that. So we come down on the IV rates by ones, but basically, you know, as you start to see a patient going up, then their amount of intral nutrition, you can start backing off on the macronutrients because you don't need to provide, you know, a maximized amount in the IV nutrition because you're giving intral nutrition and you can play with the solutions to figure out exactly how much you can get in there and maximize a, what you need. For the electrolytes, uh, we have standards at my institution. And the standards are pretty much fall in line with what Julia was mentioning. And so for 100 mLs per kilogram per day, 3 mEq per kilogram per day of sodium provides about quarter normal saline. 2 mEq per kilogram per day provides 20 mEq per liter of potassium. And the calcium then also ends up being to 20 mEq per liter of calcium. And then we add a little bit of mag in there. So what I tell my nurse practitioners to think about is if you are on, you know, if you think about your patient, they're supposed to be getting like 100 to 120 mLs per kilogram per day between enteral and parenteral. When you get down to about 75 mLs per kilogram per day, cut all your electrolytes by 25% of what you fully give the patient. They should be getting about 25% from their enteral nutrition, and then the other 75% would be from the parenteral. Same is true when you get to 50, it'd be 50-50. And when you get down to you know, a minimal amount of parenteral nutrition, the majority of your electrolytes are coming from those feeds. Probably the only exception would be maybe a little bit of sodium, because our patients tend to waste sodium. Thanks so much for listening in today be sure to follow us at ASHB official wherever you listen to your podcasts and check back soon to hear more featurettes from the 2021 ashp Mid-Year clinical meeting until then this is vicki basiliga from ashp official and thank you for all you do for your patients